0: The world out there is so diverse, you know, and so, you know, interesting out there that it's really worth delving into. You know, what other beverages are out there? Any sort of like dry white wine, an IPA beer, um, a nice glass of dry cider. Um, all of these things fit. You know, gin and tonic. You know, sherry vermouth. You know, all that kind of stuff. All fits under this very broad, ambiguous umbrella of what an is. So, for that reason, yes, you can have them at all times of the year.
1: There's nothing more social than sharing a spritz with friends, and Spritzing Hour shares the stories of those who bring us together over great food and drink. I'm Claire Warner, co founder of Acorn, a range of non alcoholic aperitifs, and I'm on a mission to prove just how important great food and drink are in connecting us to one another. I want to expose the bitter truth from the rule breakers and game changers who are turning the table on traditional food and drink culture and reshaping our social lives for the better. I'll be hearing from chefs, growers, bartenders, writers, and a whole host of people who, like me, are curious and passionate about how we can enhance that simple act of grabbing a seat at the table and eating and drinking together. Welcome to Spritzing Hour, a brand sparkling new podcast where I'll explore how life's simple pleasures can bring us closer together. I'm Claire Warner, co-founder of Acorn, and today we're exploring the drinks that connect us, specifically aperitifs and aperitivo culture. I'm joined by a dear friend, Naren Young, a world renowned expert in all things aperitivo, having run bars worldwide and the creative talent behind one of the world's best bars, Dante in New York. Plus he's an accomplished food and drink writer. Now I've known Naren for quite a few years and he is a walking food and drinkopedia full of fascinating knowledge about the history, culture and reasons behind our food and drink choices. When I wanted to know more about the types and styles of drink that connect us, I knew immediately who to turn to. This conversation is a whistle-stop tour of European and American food and drink culture, and I was really thirsty for a spritz by the end of it. If you've ever wondered why some drinks seem more social than others, you'll discover the answer and more throughout our conversation. May I suggest you pour yourself a spritz first. Enjoy! Enjoy! I'm joined today by my dear friend, Naren Young, who is a world-renowned expert in all things, just all
0: things. <laughs> Everything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everything, but particularly Aperitivo and Aperitivo Culture, having run bars all over the world and is the creative talent behind the world's best bar, Dante, in New York, and also an accomplished food and drink writer. So I'm a bit nervous, Naren, to be interviewing you uh, in this way. Um, but anyway, welcome, Naren. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks,
0: Claire. Pleasure to be here.
1: On our menu today, we're going to be tucking into the concept of how, why and when drinks can connect us. And I think it's a, a great time to be talking about connection in this way, seeing as we're living a super disconnected life right now. Obviously, you're in New York, so it's one of the great things about Zoom that we can connect in this way. But generally, we know that we've been living quite disconnected lives over the last nine months or so so it's nice to be able to talk to you about this topic which is very dear obviously to acorn's heart so what is it do you think naren about aperitifs that that feel well for me they feel inherently social right they're the drink that sort of like we get together with friends and spritz over brunch or lunch or into the early evening What, what do you think about what is it about aperitifs do you think is so so social so social um, yeah, unless you, unless you disagree and you think that they're not a social drink at all.
0: No, no, I for sure think they are. I think you know we you know when you look at the kind of the very broad history of aperitifs in Europe, they're very convivial, you know, and they're very much a communal style of drinking. You know what I mean? So a lot of people they're meeting groups, you know, at, at bars and restaurants and stuff. You know, probably not so much right now, but you, you know, you get you get my point. Um, where you know, I look at something like maybe in the us where i've been living for the last you know 15 years and it's more you know it's very normal i guess for people to go to a bar restaurant drink on their own and stuff not in a a depressing way but it's just it's very normalized where you don't see as much of that in europe i know i'm generalizing here but it's much more common to go to an outdoor cafe in milan or paris or somewhere and you know people in their groups enjoying whatever the local kind of aperitifs are and each country has their own traditions of course but which we can get into later but you know, I think they are very social, you know, and I think that's part of the beauty of them that they kind of create this kind of like, I don't know, this kind of glue that kind of brings a lot of people together, you know, at the, you know, at the, to kind of kick off the night, you know. And one thing I think is really interesting, which was pointed out to me a little while back was that in America, we have this idea of happy hour, you know, a lot of countries have their own traditions of it, but here it signals the end of the day, right? You go, you finish work, you go to the local pub and you'll get, and you'll have a few drinks or drink is, you know, maybe get wasted during happy hour and you'll head home to to dinner or whatever, you know, head home to your family or whatever it is that you do, you know. But where in Europe it's much more of a signal to the start of the evening and that's quite a very important distinction where people use that time, you know, as a very much an intrinsic part of their day. You know, it's very Mm. much a ritual and that's kind of more a celebratory time to get the night going as opposed to let's just go and get hammered at the end of the day and then see what goes from there
1: yeah yeah 100 yeah I, I remember when we talked about this when I saw you I don't know how long ago in New York and that that distinction for me I hadn't I hadn't made that connection before and it's in it perhaps also explains a little bit about the relationship that we have to drinking in countries where the destination is to get drunk versus the destination to to drink in Europe is more about coming together and being social and just the, the pure joy of being with one another rather than the pure act of drinking the drink, right? It's more about the people that you're surrounded with than the drink
0: itself. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, over, you know, in Europe, it's, you know, there I use the words like maybe my, more civilised or more elegant, um, much more um, slower and appreciative, wherein maybe particularly in some parts of the US, it's just like, let's just, get to the end of the day let's get hammered and let's, let's kind of wake up and do it again tomorrow we're there it's just a bit more social and a bit more yeah it's a bit more relaxed and I, and I really enjoy that kind of philosophy and that's kind of something that I try to bring into each bar that I kind of do as well
1: mm. well that's a good segue into um how you got into this sort of wonderful world of food and drinks can you give us a little bit of background
0: yeah I mean without going too deep I, you know I was born and raised in Sydney um came up through, through the, through the industry there, helped build that kind of scene with the, with, you know, with the guys at bartender magazine and so forth. And then kind of, while I was the editor of that was kind of bartending on this, you know, at the same time. So they kind of coexisted and they always have over the last 20 years, which has been a nice kind of way to, to learn more about food and drink. And it's allowed me to expand my knowledge in terms of travel and expose myself to different kind of um, cultures and regions and, and techniques and, and, and ingredients and so forth. So, um, yeah so I I just you know early on I got I had an interest in cocktails when I was about 14 I saw the movie cocktails sounds like a weird you know um, trajectory but that's kind of the true story and you know I thought that that looks kind of fun and you know whatever and I started working in restaurants you know from about 14 and was just surrounded by food and drink from that time I just thought this is a pretty fascinating world and it's you know it's always changing it's fairly dynamic and exotic and strange and you know I thought this sounds like a decent career path for now and it just kind of turned into, turned into a full-blown passion and obsession and that was pretty much it moved to New York about 15 years ago to kind of you know discover what this city had it was kind of the pinnacle that in London I guess at the time were kind of like the two places you could go for the very the very best luckily now we have cities all around the world which have incredible bar, bar scenes but at that time those were probably the two leading lights um and most people you know I'd done a little bit in London uh, for about a year but most people most Australians tend to go to London, so I found it a bit a bit too easy, you know, so I wanted to do something a bit more difficult and I thought New York sort of provided that kind of, that that inspiration and that journey to be around people like Dale, Dale de Groff and Gary Regan and David Wondrich and Audrey Saunders, all these names that I'd read about, mm. but be able to mingle with them on a kind of a weekly basis, you know, was was a great way to kind of learn and I, I was in that very much and still am in that, you know, position of learning and so that was pretty, that's pretty much in a nutshell, you know, and I think it's, you know, it's, this industry affords us some amazing opportunities to travel and, and see the world. And, you know, we've been, you know, you like yourself included, you know, very lucky for us to be able to, you know, meet in different parts of the world and gain different inspirations, like I said, and that's a really, really exceptional part of this industry, which didn't exist when, when we started out and was, there was never any of this kind of stuff. So this has mm-hmm. really kind of really opened us all up to more creativity and, you know, um, ideas and, empathy and stuff. So it's great. You know, I think it's, it's, it's a really exciting time, you know, not right now, but, you know, up until recently and hopefully we'll get out of this and we'll, we'll get back to a, a world where we kind of, you know, live that life that we really enjoyed as well. You know?
1: Yeah. hundred percent. What would you say is the sort of main um, differences between the the scene, the cocktail and food scene in, in New York and London? Um,
0: that's a good, that's a really good question. Um, you know, for a long time, I you know I think that um, you know New York does you know New York does very well at all levels of cuisine. I think in terms of um, different you know you know cheap, middle, and 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 high end. Where when I was living in London like 15 years ago, it was basically either the the kind of the cheap and the very high end. You know, like the Michelin star. And I think that the London food scene right now is just like so incredibly amazing. You know, in the last what, 10 years or so, it's just really come on and leaps and bounds. And I just think it's It's epic. I love eating out there. Um, So I think finding differences these days, particularly with the rise of, you know, the use of the internet and this Zoomy Zoom world, I think that, you know, the the differences are getting smaller and smaller, you know, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I think it's just, you know, Mm -hmm. know, there's so much more information and inspiration out there for people to kind of get hold of and grasp. And, you know, I think that's affecting chefs and bartenders and, you know, brand people like yourself. And, you know, I think it's just been a really positive thing for us all to be able to share these ideas. So Mm -hmm. I think that... Yeah, the differences for me are, you know, people often compare the two. I'm not really sure how to compare them anymore. I just think they're both great food and drink cities. They each have their own, you know, pros and cons, and I just think it's they're both really exciting.
1: Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, let's get into um, aperitivo and aperitifs. And um, I'm going to admit, you know, the first time that I ever heard the word aperitif, I did think that someone was (laughs) asking me for a pair of teeth. I don't know if that's like my... South London accent, but I was honestly confused by what I was being asked of. Like, what is a pair of teeth? Is it a strange cocktail that I haven't heard of before? And even now, when I hear it, and I obviously have a brand which is acorn aperitifs pair even now I hear a pair of teeth. But you know, what is this strange word? Because you know, for a lot of people, it's it still sounds so exotic and unusual. What what does this actually mean?
0: <laughs> a pair
1: a pair of teeth, not a pair of teeth.
0: Yes, well, this is coming from you know your your you know the high point of your cuisine twenty years ago might have been a chip butty or something. You know, beans, I so, true.
1: true story, <laughs> beans on toast.
0: <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with it. No judging here. No judging here. But um, you know, I think that um, this it, 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 it is a confusing, ambiguous um, world of pairings, but it, which is kind of, I guess, has been the hardest part of pushing this category forward is getting people to understand exactly what it is you know what i mean because not only is it difficult to pronounce depending on what language you're putting it in they're all you know it, it's so broad and diverse which is a great thing um but you know each each old world country which is where you know with where this tradition started all have their own traditions you know they all have their own drinking rituals their own actual drinks their own drinking styles and it can even differ not just from the country but within the regions within those countries so For me, that's been part of the exciting thing is discovering all of these different kind of, you know, drinking rituals from the old world, you know. And this can go back to like the Greek and Romans were like infusing wine, which I guess was the precursor to the moon, you know what I mean? So there were, you know, whether they meant it that way or not, I'm I'm sure they did. Um, You know, I think they were very, you know, thoughtful in a lot of the ways they went about that they're drinking and their food and their wine and, you know, their bit of culture and stuff. So I think that that really kind of, you know, was the, the precursor to to a lot of the things that we're still enjoying today, you know, from these old worlds. So you might, you know, go to France and have a Kier or a Ricard or maybe even just a glass of champagne, or you might go to, you know, um, Italy, you know, have a Prosecco or an Americano or, you know, or a glass of vermouth, you know, or you might go to the Czech Republic and have a, I don't know, a Becker and tonic or soda, you know, or Spain, you might drink some nice dry sherry or a and T. So all of them have their own traditions, which have now, I think the most exciting thing is started to permeate its way into other cultures Particularly those that didn't have this kind of, um, you know, these traditions to them, like America or England, or you know, it, um, you know, even though you know it, we each have our own certain traditions, but we're starting to see those European style of drinks start to infuse our own kind of drinking cultures, and that's really exciting, you know, because it opened mm-hmm. us up, particularly as as creative bartenders and so forth, to be, you know, more inspired by these mm. various, you know, we're all looking to the. The classics in the old world and these different drinking traditions and i think that's really cool you know because mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of history and there's a lot of a great narrative to be told when you kind of explore and go down the rabbit hole of, of what these can bring to your bar
1: yeah so money i mean i suppose it taps into what we were mentioning earlier just about you know in this country the destination is slightly different when you you know think about how we drink in this country in that you know we Head to, head to the pub and, uh, you know, our idea of canapé might be a packet of crisps and a, you know, and, a, and a beer and stuff, you know, again, generalizing. But, you know, our destination is slightly different from the sort of the slowing down and the, the sort of preamble towards food that they have in, in Europe in particular, where the drinking aspect is about the appetite, right? And, and, and the aperitif is about, you know, awakening the appetite and getting you ready for food as opposed to here, food's almost the afterthought.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important note, particularly for those, you know, for anyone that's, you know, that's watching that's not a drinks nerd like we are, that, you know, the word aperitif means like, you know, to open up, you know, and it means to open up, you know, the palate and open up the, you know, the stomach and get the, you know, the juices flowing for the appetite, you know, sends a message to the brain like, oh, I'm hungry. And that's why these drinks are typically inherently, you know, dry or bitter or sometimes sour or a combination thereof. You know, they're never normally typically supposed to be heavy or sweet, um, you know, so I think that they, they always go hand in hand with food in Europe and that's really important. Like, it's just they're just so intrinsically bound to each other that particularly in most cafes in Italy, if you order any drink at all, they'll bring you free food, you know. Now, when you're backpacking around Italy when I was when I was 18, I would jump from you know cafe to cafe, ordering the cheapest drink that I had, so I could get so I could use, use the food <laughs> snacks for dinner, and that's a true story. So, they
1: were delicious as well. <laughs> yeah, and listen,
0: and depending on you can go to a local cafe and they'll give you some crisps, right? Where you might go to a Four Seasons hotel or something, they'll give you you know a beautiful tray of you know it looks like you're having high tea at the Savoy, you know. But it just all depends. But I think the point is, you're right. It, it's it's all about its link, you know, and its lineage to food. And what that drink means in terms of the context of that kind of sh- that shared experience before a meal, you know. So mm. you go to the piazza and you'll crack a bottle of prosecco. They'll bring you some snacks, and that's how you begin your evening. I mean, fuck, what a beautiful world that is to live in. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I, I'm very envious of the Europeans and stuff—the way they kind of enjoy life like that. And I think that it's mm. you know there's something to be said for that kind of that you know um, la dolce vita, so to speak. You know, I think it's a really, a really you know, like I said, civilized and just enjoyable way to kind of to begin an evening what do
1: you think it is about these, these types of drinks or this uh, sort of aperitivo culture that's enabled that culture to transcend Europe? So obviously, you know how successful, um, you know, it was when you opened Dante and that is, you know, predominantly an aperitivo bar. What do you think it is about that style of drinking that that can transcend Europe and actually have appeal in, in other countries?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, when we when we first opened, I guess, you know, the, uh, this concept of aperitivo was fairly new to America, you know, like sure people had were drinking Negronis and americanas and stuff, and we I certainly wouldn't lay like, claim to being like the, you know, the the people to introduced that to, to to the country, but it was, it was we definitely introduced it to a wider audience, you know, and I think that people potentially were looking for something different. There were also people I think there's a lot of cachet and respect around these kind of timeless traditions of aperitivo culture that come out of the old world. I think mm. people are fascinated by that. You know, I think it can be quite transportive. Like you said, I think the idea of kind of taking someone to a little cafe in, you know, Florence or, you know, Prague or something, it has a certain appeal um, mm. and so forth, you know. But, you know, a lot of people talk about this, ask me, you know, one of the words I really hate is the word trend. You know, I think that um, I think it's a bit of nonsense really that kind of a lot of marketing people put together. Oh, it's just going to be trendy in five years. And basically the idea is if, you know, for me that's exactly what it means, it's going to be coming, you know, going to come and go. Where the old idea of aperitivo drinking has been around for hundreds of years and it hasn't gone anywhere in Europe. So mm-hmm. the idea of it coming here, I think, is you know it was a smart move. It's a strong move. It worked out you know really well for Dante, and I think that people have really embraced it because they were you know they were introduced to a new way of drinking, which was like I said, very convivial and communal, um, where they didn't have to sit down and get wasted. They could sit down and have four, five, six cocktails that were low alcohol and just really enjoy themselves. So. I think for all those reasons, you know, it really kind of hit a nerve with a lot of people here. And, and in terms of that kind of trend idea, I think that people are just drinking this way now. You know, whether it's low alcohol, no alcohol, you know, um, all these kind of um, you know, these kind of styles of drinks, I think more people are latching onto, and I think that's a great thing. And, it, mm. and I don't believe it is a trend because I just think it's going to be here forever. Because people that just, that, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily call, I wouldn't call it healthy drinking. I'll call it healthier drinking for sure you know, drinking something that's low alcohol and no alcohol is certainly healthier than, um, drinking something that's high booze and high sugar and so forth. Yeah. I think that yeah. people are really kind of catching on to that and I don't, I don't see it really going anywhere, you know? So no. I think that, you know, that's, for all those reasons, I think it's really kind of, you, if anything, you're going to see it expand and you're already seeing imperativo buzz pop up in really unlikely places across America and other parts of the world too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, like as you mentioned, you know, the the, the flavour profile of the drinks lend themselves to um, lower and no ABV drinks, right? So people feel as though they're having an experience of something complex, multifaceted, with all those sort of bitter botanical flavours and still the ABV is lower and perhaps do you think that's something that's driving the popularity of, of those styles of drinks? I
0: think so. I mean, I think at the end of the day, people like drinking, right? A lot of people like drinking. so you know, I also think that more people cotton on to the fact that maybe being drunk is not necessarily a good thing or a nice thing. Drinking is a lovely thing and I, and I really enjoy drinking. I don't like necessarily being drunk, but I think I like the idea mm-hmm. of drinking and like conviviality over like the flavour of it. So for people, if they can sit around and drink more drinks that are low alcohol that are still, you know, that are, that are healthier for them and, and doesn't kind of, you know, get them really inebriated, then that, you know, hopefully that's a good thing, you know, obviously mm-hmm. from a, business point of view to the bottom line is obviously very, you know, can be very lucrative as well, but from a health perspective and just from a general, like wanting to, you know, enjoy this style of drinks, I think that's why people have also kind of, you know, shifted towards drinking them as well. You know, it's a really great scene to be sitting outside and watching people drinking a whole range of spritzes and highballs and, you know, you know, Americano style drinks and champagne style drinks and no alcohol drinks. So I think it's a really, and the kaleidoscope of colours that you see is really kind of, you know, um, you know, it's really captivating. So I think that's really mm-hmm. kind of definitely created a a sense of curiosity for people that um is only getting stronger you know
1: yeah now probably the most ubiquitous of these drinks I would say is the spritz um and we've got to talk about the New York Times piece that that was released was it last year where it talked about the spritz being not a good drink do you think um, do, do you think the spritz attracts a certain level of snobbery unnecessarily or unfairly? So,
0: I think so. You know, I think that you know. Um, listen, I love an apple spritz as much as the next person. I think it's a super refreshing drink. You know, like people can hate on it all they want. You know, but I think generally people want to attack popular things. You know, but things that are successful. You know, I mean, it's that's just a fact of life. that it happens. You know, but um, I guess my my theory is always with these kind of drinks that are fairly ubiquitous or. Um, you know, that, I guess become part of popular culture is how can, how can we or how can I make the best version of that drink that someone's ever had? So okay, mm. maybe it's just a simple, like maybe we add a dash of salt to the Apple spritz. Maybe there's a dash of orange bitters in there to take off the sweetness. Maybe we put the green olive in like it's traditionally served with. All these things that can really elevate that drink to be more than what people have come to expect from it, um, you know, as this kind of like just fruity sugar bomb you know on and that can go for several drinks and so whether it's an espresso martini which i freaking love but how do we make that the best version that someone's ever had so that's how mm. i kind of approach it as well but you know there's always um you know going to be some sort of stereotypes that go along with these drinks like the spritz you know i think the whole idea of like you know masculine versus feminine drinks it's like complete nonsense i don't I just, you know I, I don't understand it you know if, if you're too manly to drink a spritz and you've, you've probably got much bigger problems um, in your life <laughs> than drinking out of a wine glass you know um you know, I love it when yeah. people say, can you put it in a real glass for me? I was like, what's a real glass? It's, you know, or, oh, no. you know like it's so girly. I was like, what does that even, what does that even mean? You know, like, yeah. so, you know, they, they're always going to create these stereotypes, you know. Um, but, you know, I think that the bottom line is, you know, we should just be trying to make delicious drinks. You know, hopefully those, those delicious drinks appeal to as wider audience as possible.
1: Yeah. And and it's quite nice in a way because you're you're talking about drinks that we all are quite familiar with. We've heard, you know, we've heard about the spirits, we've heard about the espresso martini. they um, they they're, they're accessible drinks but you've made them even more special by very simple additions of uh, you know, the salt or the olive and and elevated that experience. But that means that that experience can still be even elevated at home, right? If you're making these types of drinks, if you want to experiment at home, you can still make the most exceptional espresso martini at home with some of the things that you've, you've identified um, at Dante. Can we talk a little bit about how you make aperitivo delicious, even if you're not in a bar?
0: Yeah, you know, I don't think you need to like, spend a lot of money to kit out your bar. Like, I mean, I, during, during lockdown, I was doing a re- series of ridiculous videos about the fact that you did not need, you know, a bunch of fancy Japanese bar equipment to make cocktails at home, you know? So for anyone that feel, that, that's not in the industry that feels intimidated by, you know, this fact, you know, like you don't need all that fancy kit to, to kind of make delicious drinks, you know what I mean? So, um, and you don't need to necessarily spend a lot of money on, on your home, you know, on your home bar. You know, buy the best, buy the best ingredients that you can afford. You know, um, you know, one or two nice glasses don't don't hurt. You know, I think mm-hmm. can really elevate the experience. You know, in the bar ex- environment, the things that for me that elevate the experience, the drinks that I'm creating are the glassware, the type of ice, and the and the garnish. Those three things can really, just really elevate things. Or even like a coaster. You know, those four things can really just make this drink more than the sum of its parts. So, at home, if you can invest, you know, afford to invest in a couple of nice glasses. You know, you don't need a fancy shaker or any of that stuff. Um, make sure you have some nice, some nice good ice, which you can buy molds to, to, to you know, super, you know, for fairly cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just, buy, you know, like I said, just make sure you have good quality ingredients and and spirits and stuff that you can afford. And build up your bar, bar, home bar over time. You know, like you yeah. don't have to bombard. You know, buy one bottle every couple of weeks. You know, or you know, buy, buy, buy half bottles if they're available, you know. So all these things can really help with elevate. And the thing is with a lot of these aperitifs, they're not very expensive compared to buying, say, a whole bottle of gin or a whole bottle of whiskey, you know, or yeah. any particularly aged spirits, which are much more expensive. So a lot of these things, you know, to go out and buy some vermouth or sherry or, you know, Italian bitters or, you know, um, any of these kind of things can, can be done on quite a decent budget, you know, on quite mm. a low budget. So, you know.
1: And they're all, they're all pretty simple types of drinks as well, aren't they? I mean, they... I don't know if that's something to do with the history of them maybe uh, if you would know you could, you could expand on that but they seem to be very simple in their execution but complex in taste so there are a couple of ingredients or so there's some bitters thrown in but they overall are pretty simple uh, when you're constructing them at home
0: they are you know I mean you could do something like say a couple of good examples might be a bamboo cocktail which is basically just dry vermouth or you know or dry, you know dry vermouth and dry sherry you know you could you know both of which are fairly complex drinks on their own you know, they both, you know, you know, sherry is, you know, has a very kind of nuttiness and, and lots of oak ageing, you know, which, you know, vermouth has a lot of botanicals and a lot of complexity from that. Then you could throw in a little bit of lemon bitters, or angostura bitters if you want, which adds even further depth. And all these things don't cost a lot of money. You know, most, a lot of households even have angostura bitters, probably been sitting there. You probably bought one <laughs> bottle 10 years ago that your grandmother bought for the put in a Christmas cake and you've used <laughs> one drop, you know, and now you don't know what to do with it, you know. So there's plenty yeah. of, there's plenty of, um, ways you can add depth and complexity to these drinks without spending much money. And like, and it's a good point you made, Claire, that it's like, you know, these, these drinks have, you know, have complexity already, but how can we mm. enhance that? Or how do we use that to, you know, to you know put that into a mixed drink, you know, or, mm. a, you know, an Adonis cocktail, which is basically the same as a bamboo, but you might use an, like more of an aged sherry, like an Amontillado or something and maybe a, a, a red vermouth, you know? So there's plenty of ways that we can use these things. And a lot of, um, a lot of households surprisingly have a lot of vermouth and sherry sitting around already. You know, I'm sure your grandmother yeah. has a bottle of cream sherry that she's given you as well, but you probably wouldn't put that in there. Look, I can see Stewie <laughs> nodding his head. Say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go have a glass <laughs> right after this.
1: <laughs> this is a good point, Mike, right? because we see all these bottles. I mean, I remember like my, my granddad used to collect uh, miniatures, right, and I would used to, as a kid, sit in front of his cabinet of hundreds of miniatures and just be transfixed by all of the labels and all of the smells and all of the kind of craziness. And it's, it is intimidating when you think about all of these very alien types of drinks that we might not have grown up with, or we don't recognize the labels and, you know, what, what do you do with them? And I think the first thing to say is like, taste them, you know, taste, taste and see what they taste like. And, you know, nothing wrong with a splash of soda in there or, you know, of lemonade if you want to sweeten it up or something but you know don't be intimidated by the labels that you might not recognize because we've not grown up with them right
0: yeah for sure definitely and, and just keep in mind some of these drinks you know are, are, you know aperitifs are essentially you know treated like should be treated like wine you know so make sure you're keeping your vermouth closed and in the fridge same with your sherry dry sherry so you know if you keep it on the if you've had it on the cupboard for months you know um chances are it's probably you know gonna taste a little oxidized or rancid you know and that's just through people's maybe not knowing like a lot of you know you know amateur bartenders you know like not professionals i should say you know home entertainers not knowing the difference so just make sure you keep those in the fridge and it'll really you know you know make sure they're keeping nice and bright and fresh and you know for your drinks. yeah
1: also uh, shamelessly, I will say that acorn too should be kept in the fridge once open to keep it bright and fresh. So thanks for letting me sneak that in. Um, so look, you're, you're in New York, we're in London, it's getting kind of chilly now. Yep. Well, we think of aperitif, aperitivo as the drinks that we have for summer, but do they have any, any sort of role to play in sort of drinking during colder months like Thanksgiving or Christmas? You know, can we spritz throughout colder months for instance?
0: you know, and I think that when we think of classic aperitifs, we think of fairly household names, right? We think of like Negroni, Americano, Martini, Champagne, you know, these kind of things that are all dry and and or bitter and, like I said, open up the palate, right? But the the world out there is so diverse, you know, and so, um, you know, interesting out there that it's really worth delving into, you know, what other beverages are out there. Any sort of like dry white wine, an IPA beer, um, a nice glass of dry cider, Um, all of these things fit, you know, gin and tonic, you know, sherry, vermouth, you know, all that kind of stuff, all fits under this very broad, ambiguous umbrella of what an aperitif is. So for that reason, yes, you can have them at all times of the year depending on what they are, you know. So, yes, maybe something bright and fresh like a spritz or a gin and tonic um, or a nice long, you know, refreshing americano might be more pertinent to the warmer months, but we definitely should not forget about them when it gets cold, you know. So a couple of, you know, things that I kind of, what I really am psyched about that. You don't see too much, is particularly when you're talking about Thanksgiving or Christmas. You know, you're getting out the roast turkey, the roast chicken, whatever it is, um, or you know, roast beef, whatever. I think dry Lambrusco is a really underrated. Um, you know, not that sweet crap that our probably you know, grandparents probably drank, but like proper dry, you know, bone dry, you know, Lambrusco from Emilia Romagna, which goes, you know, if you bring that to a to a Christmas dinner, I'm telling you, you'll be like the the hero there. It's like one of the greatest under there's you know, underrated food drink pairings out there and it's really great as an aperitif. Um, you know, like I said, dry cider is really great. None of that mass produced stuff they do in Ireland, you know, but like, you know, proper, you know, French, um, you know, Spanish, or <coughs> sorry, English um, cider, <laughs> you know, also works really well as an aperitif, you know, um, champagne, I think never has a season, you know, I think that's, yeah. you know, I think that's great all year round. Um and then, and then things like maybe it's like a Negroni, but with some hard spices in there, like, you know, some cinnamon or nutmeg or clove or something that could be really nice. Maybe a dry Manhattan as opposed to like a mm-hmm. sweet one could be a really nice kind of wintry kind of aperitif, you know, a G&T, depending, you know, with different botanicals, depending on the botanical structure. And then even a the Montiato Sherry's or Oloroso Sherry's can also be really nice, nice dry versions of those. Yeah. The nuttiness and the kind of like, you know, that kind of underlying kind of like leathery kind of um butteriness can be really tasty. So any of those I think can be really nice wintry kind of style drinks to maybe look forward to this season. Mm.
1: And also, you know, we're going to be eating a lot of food, so you want something that's going to prepare you for feasting, right? So things that are bitter, herbaceous, like botanically rich will do a good job in making you hungry and appreciate your food more, right, whether it's yeah. warm or cold.
0: Yeah, most of, most of these aperitifs, like I said, were typically mostly to go with snacks traditionally, like so, but so most of the foods would have been like either a little bit salty, um, maybe a little bit fatty, um, you know, so a lot of these dry kind of style drinks would have been there to cut that fattiness and that saltiness. The saltiness is there, but it's great because it gets people drinking more, which is great, I guess, for, for the, for the business and the proprietors and the fattiness really kind of, that's why a lot of these, like, you know, they say where, you know, where it goes with what, you know, what grows with it goes with it, you know, so, you know, like these fatty meats from Amelia Romagna, Go really well with this Lambrusco because it's super dry and bone dry and cuts through some of that fattiness. So there's all that you know. And same with like this, you know, the the, the kind of Amontillado and kind of down in Andalusia goes perfectly with the kind of sherry's coming out of Jerez because they kind of cut that fattiness. So there's certainly a, a reason, science behind a lot of these, which I also find a really another fascinating part of this world is to learn about not just what the drinks are, but why they're drunk a certain way and the context in which they're drunk in their certain regions, you know, and how that is now started to kind of you know travel. To all corners of the globe, and we're starting to appreciate that. And I think that's a really fascinating, fascinating narrative for us all to learn. Because now there's, this, there's stories to be told when we're kind of either drinking in bars or serving guests in our bars. And I think that's really important. Mm.
1: Yeah. I think you know we we um, you know we're always fascinated by food, and you know particularly I suppose the people that we come in contact with are, are very sort of like foody focused. Um, and what lovely advice to say to somebody who's maybe a bit intimidated by the drinks to in fact say look you know if you're really into your food just explore a little bit around what drinks come from that same region or how those drinks are consumed as a way of just broadening our kind of gastronic, gastronomic repertoire we're just not only focusing on the food that we love but also the drinks that are created in those
0: similar regions 100% i mean that's why things like muscadet wine goes perfectly with oysters or champagne goes with oysters and you know like you know, I love, you know, I love those little cute finger sandwiches with the with the crust cut off, you know, with like, you know, either something simple like I don't know, cucumber and smoked salmon or like something ploncy like cooking, you know, like um caviar and gold leaf or some shit, you know, but you know, <laughs> all those little like kind of those yeah, kind of like,
1: fancier like, taste than me. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, but you know, like you gotta have high tea or something and you're like I love having those things with a glass of champagne or you know, or a nice dry martini with some like oysters or some chilled or raw seafood. I think is a is a really nice kind of um You know, it's a really nice kind of combination.
1: I always appreciate the drink more when I have food with it as well. I find it really difficult now to just have a glass of wine or just have an aperitif, you know, just have a spritz. I I now need to have something with it. Right. To to, to, to complement it. You know, it's not just about the drink for me anymore. I'm like, where's my snacks?
0: Yeah. Well, I think you appreciate both sides of it when you do it that way. You know, I think you appreciate Mm. the food more and I think you appreciate the drink more.
1: Mm, Absolutely. So, like just in our last sort of section now, I'm interested to talk about, you know, more broadly this sort of idea of, of drinks that can connect us more meaningfully or the, or the concept in general of like how food and drink connect us. Um, we, we often talk about, you know, being part of the hospitality industry, and hospitality is defined as the friendly and generous reception and entertainment of guests visitors or strangers now obviously this year it's been tough for us to be truly hospitable um but do you know do you think that there is a role in um in food and drink to help us meaning more meaningfully connect
0: uh well i certainly hope so you know i think otherwise what's the point right you know what's but, the point yeah you know whether i mean whether you're at a bar restaurant or at home you know or you're on your own or with friends you know i hope there's the possibility of a meaning connection there and i think that you know, drinking responsibly, you know, can and should lead to some great relationships that form under these circumstances. And I think that, you know, drinking has forever been a place, you know, or sorry, you know, a ritual where people can, you know, can connect and and converse and, and you know, and and forge, you know, forge those bonds. So I think, you know, it's forever been like that. You know, I hope it continues to be like that. And I think that that's part of the reason why we go to bars and go to restaurants and stuff. So we can really kind of, you know, Understand, you know, human nature a bit better as well, which I think is a fascinating world.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. It's interesting for me that um, you know you could you always feel. You know, I did a seminar a few years ago at Tales where we talked about the anthropology of the of the modern bar, and uh, we broke it down to be as simple as just the Cheers theme tune. You know, it's where someone knows your name, or it's where you can go and feel yourself and you know, the role, the the physical manifestation of a bar or a restaurant is a place where you can go to uh, connect more deeply with other people, right? You know, it's, we can have dinners, we can have dinners at home, but when we're in a restaurant or a bar environment, something quite special, I feel happens. There's an experiential level to it that you might not otherwise find when you're at home, which is why I think so many people are you know, the, the, the fact that hospitality has been so devastated by what's happened in the last nine months is, has probably greater implications to our uh, mental health as well as, you know, our financial health.
0: For sure. And you know, I think that, you know, hospitality, you know, transcends all types of bars, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, it's it's not exclusive to the five-star hotel, hotel bars of the world, you know, you can get it at, you know, a, a beer house in Germany, you can get it at a pub, in, you know, at a pub in England, you can get it at a tavern in, in America, you know, so this idea of hospitality was had, had always kind of transcended, you know, the venue itself, you know, so I think that um, it's really important that we understand, like you said, what the word actually means, you know, the difference between servitude and hospitality and, and maybe make sure we're offering that within mm. the, the, you know, within the four walls of whatever style of bar you work in because it doesn't mm-hmm. matter, you know, whether you work at, you know, the connor who are some of the absolute masters at it to the local pub down the street. You know, I think that that's, you know, that's really important that we understand that and because that, that, that's what, that's what is, um, will become, I hope, more important than ever as we get out of this.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we're looking probably at a slightly different Thanksgiving or a slightly different uh, Christmas this year. What would you, what advice would you give for people trying to still be a great host, but perhaps like over Zoom or in a sort of like newly disconnected way?
0: You know, I think that... um. It's nice to always have some options, you know, in the fridge or in the, in the wine cellar or on the liquor cabinet. You know, you can't be just like in a you, you can't be everything to everyone. But I think to be able to offer people a little range of things when they come over when you're entertaining this year and, you know, maybe use that opportunity to introduce them to something new, whether it's, you know, a Montillado sherry or a cool dry cider you found or maybe some or a little bit of acorn. You know, <laughs> <laughs> if they are, uh, if they, uh, you know, <laughs> if they. Something for
1: everybody. Not everybody wants to drink.
0: That's Acorns, right. not you can't. No, 100%. And listen, you know, a lot of people, you know, tra- are, are travelling, you know, they're travelling longer distances in a car these days because of like of flying and so forth. So, you know, p- people are, are driving and it's important that, you know, someone is um, sober. You know, so all these things are super important. So having a wide range of things, and that's a good. That's and you know, Claire, that's a really important point to make sure you have options for, you know, for everyone. You know, make, maybe the kids' options are more exciting than, you know, like in a sprite or something. You know, so, you know, I think that having that, and and just like you know, making sure that yeah, there's a nice range of whether it's bubbles and just some interesting things, and I think that's a nice way to open up other people's worlds and maybe don't live and breathe the kind of the you know the, the drinks world that we do. Um, if it's someone that's not in that world, that they can really get exposed to that is
1: great. Yeah. No, it's so, it's so important that you've got, yeah, that you, you make it easy for yourself, right. If you're hosting and, um, and and even if we're hosting, you know, remotely, you know, you still want it to be, you don't want to be a slave to the, the cooker, right. If you want to be able to do a zoom with your friends and family. So maybe it's just about keeping it simple and making it, you know, easy on yourself.
0: Yeah, and I think as we talk about conviviality and, and, you know, this kind of communal drinking, I mean, nothing symbolizes that more or has over the last three or 400 years than the bowl of punch, you know? So having a nice, great bowl of punch there with a big chunk of ice in there and, you know, you don't drop that in until the guests just arrive and it just sits there for an hour or two. It doesn't, you know, and that's a nice kind of convivial way to kind of people enjoy that, you know? You can have a non-alcoholic one, an alcoholic one, you know? So there's plenty of ways you can be creative with that and make it look super pretty. And, you know, that's a nice kind of, you know, a nice way to kind of take the pressure off everything else that's on you, whether it's cooking and socialising and all the things that go with those kind of stressful holidays. So um, mm-hmm. to make that as easy as possible with something like the punch, you know, or some pictures or something, you know, is, is a really nice easy way to do things.
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, so last question for you. If you were to be spritzing with anybody, alive or dead, who would uh, who would you pick?
0: Um Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think if I don't say Kimiko, I'll probably get in a lot of trouble. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, the wife would uh, have something to say, I think.
0: Oh, man, you know, that's a tough one. I just think I just want to get a bunch of friends together, like at your wedding, and just like just sit around a pool with a whole bunch of friends and just like, you know, we'll sit in the pool and just have some spritzers. That would just, God, wouldn't that just make our year or next year, you know? So, um yeah, that's a good question. Too many people to name, really. I mean, you know, if, if it's someone that's not in my close circle but, you know, that I would love to always have a drink with, I would love to have a drink with Barack Obama. <laughs> he, yes. he just looks like a just a badass dude and he's just such a, yeah, just a good human. So I think I would, you know, even though I'd be fucking shitting, shitting myself and quaking in the knees, but, you know, I think he, he looks like he'd be a good guy to have a beer with or I don't know, maybe, yeah, he, yeah. Like, maybe he loves a spritz. <laughs>
1: 100%. I don't know if he drinks. I'm sure he does.
0: Yeah, he loves a good drink. Yeah, of course he does. Yeah. sitting around having beers and he's see him on vacation yeah. with his, you know, yeah, no, exactly. windsurfer and probably just sweeps him into a pina colada, that, you know.
1: That's a, that's a good shout. I think he'd be he'd have a good chat. He'd be a good, good person to spritz with. Yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, listen, Naren Young, thank you so much for taking us on a journey through aperitivo culture and how to make great aperitifs at home and helping me understand the root of the word aperitif and it's not a um so I've learned something today thank you so much
0: my absolute pleasure
1: I hope you enjoyed that episode join me next time when I'll be chatting to Claire Ratanon organic grower extraordinaire about her journey from Brooklyn making Emmy award winning documentaries to East Sussex via Hackney and what she discovered about food love and herself along the way